Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Shares for beginners. So the franking credit refers to the credit you have as an investor for the tax already paid by the company. But it's paid it on your behalf. Some people have trouble getting their head around and think, oh, why is the government just giving people money back? It's not. It's similar to you as a PAYG taxpayer. Your employer pays tax. At tax time you work out, is that too much or too little? And you make an adjustment. It's very similar in that regard. The company's paid tax from its profits that I'm an owner on that company. Have I paid too much? or too little as an owner. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. We hear lots about ETFs these days, but Australians have been investing in things called LICs and LITs for much longer. Joining me today is Ian Irvine, Chief Executive Officer, Listed Investment Companies and Trust Association. Hi there, Ian. Thanks for coming along. Hi, Phil. Good to see you again. Lickout represents the interests of listed investment companies, LICs, listed investment trusts, LITs, and investors to protect, develop, and grow the sector through advocacy and education. However, before talking about LICs, we're going to go back to Share Investing 101. And Ian, let's kick off with some of what you believe to be the key investment principles when starting out in markets. Uh, first on your list is compounding. Yeah, it is, Phil. Um I think there's always a temptation when you start out investing just to jump in and buy a stock or make an investment in a share, and that may be based on what someone else is doing, what someone else has told you, or what you may have read in the media. But I think if you're going to be successful over the long term, and that's what investing is, it's a long-term decision to invest for the future. Hmm. Compounding, once described by Albert Einstein, I'm told, (laughs) as the eighth wonder of the world. And it sort of has a snowball effect. So it may start out small and as it rolls down the hill, it picks up momentum. So if you start off investing small, but consistently over a period of time, your investment will grow and the income it earns will also grow. And if you reinvest that income, that will give you that snowballing effect. So once you get hold of how compounding can work, and I'll give you a brief brief example, and this is something that some of our listeners may want to do with a, a bit of a spreadsheet. But if you started investing at the age 20 for 20 years up to your 40th birthday, and you simply put away $100 a week or you know, 5200 a year, and you invested that, then put another 5200 in, and the interest was reinvested and reinvested and reinvested until you were 40. Then you left that sitting wherever it was in your investment portfolio. The person alongside you starts investing at 40 for 20 years, just like you, putting in their 5200 a year. Where do you think you'd finish up side by side at the age of 60? So you've each invested for 20 years. You've let it run for the next 20 years. That person alongside you started 20 years after you, both age 60. Do the calculation and see where it works. it works out because even at a modest rate of interest, it's often the case that the person that started earlier and invested for the longer term is ahead. And uh, presumably, if you're 
investing in the ASX, you're going to get the compounding effect of dividends and also the uptick in uh, markets as well. Yeah, I mean, mm. and even this puts aside that uptick in markets. So this is just taking your income mm-hmm. that you receive and reinvesting it back through your dividends, possibly even through a dividend reinvestment plan. Yeah. I was t- actually looking at something on Twitter the other day and um, a market commentator said that um, if you left your money in the ASX for the last 20 years or so, that the compounding is... 10% per annum, around about that sort of figure, yeah. apparently. However, what I can't understand is that the market is still only just a tiny, tiny bit above its peak in 2007, the ASX 200. Is that compounding just from dividends? Yeah, so when you look at the index, it's just the price index. So yeah. There's a number of indices that can track a, an investment's performance, and that's a very good point that you should be aware if you're investing in a particular investment product, what's its benchmark and what's it tracking. Mm-hmm. So the index we see on television most evenings is just the price movement. The accumulation index is actually the combination of price and reinvestment of those dividends mm. before any franking. And then there's a third index that actually does include franking. So for some investors, I know we're talking about getting started here, but when you're investing for the long term and planning for retirement, franking can be a very important consideration. So the next point you've got is uh, cash flow. Yeah, always good. Nothing like starting with a plan. So if I'm starting out investing, I've got my head around compounding, where's the money coming from? So a lot of people are saving for a range of things, whether it's a holiday, a motor vehicle, a house. Mm. Should I start investing and try and do all those other things? My answer would be yes. You've got to do a little of each as appropriate. So where's the money going to come from in getting my investment portfolio? This is referring to the cash flow in your own personal yep. position statement. Yep. And actually, mm. that's another great point because there's, there's a couple of other cash flow considerations. The first is yeah. how am I going to invest? Where's the money coming from? Secondly, what's my portfolio going to give me by way of cash flow? And I can reinvest that, get the compounding effect. And then thirdly, that cash flow many, many years down the track in retirement can become the source of my retirement income. Mm. And there's a lot of people believe that you can retire early these days, especially if you can start this compounding at a very young age, yeah, can which help. kind of makes sense. It does. Um, mm. And you often find, it's been my experience, when you can afford to retire, you don't want to because you want to keep doing things just like this. <laughs> That's right. So diversification, this is another really important aspect, isn't it? Yeah, simply put, not having all your eggs in the one basket. Mm. When you start out investing, you may start small. But you can start start small in a number of ways these days and get a diversified portfolio that's not exposed just to one share or one class of share. Mm. It may be logical just to start with a share portfolio of a few Australian shares, then you can add some global shares, and uh, as your investment profile changes, you can also add some fixed income property and those sorts of things to portfolio. So that's the diversification. And that gives you a spread of risk as well. Mm. So cash in the bank is almost risk free. The big risk with cash in the bank is not earning enough low interest rates. Whereas if you invest in some other asset classes, they have higher risk and you should expect a higher return. So there's that aspect as well. The other side of diversification is having liquidity. And I spent many years at the ASX, as you and some of your readers or listeners may know. And we spoke a lot about actually having a liquid underlying. Mm. So the ASX provides an ability to get in and out real time during market hours. As opposed to buying a property, which is, uh, you know, you can't sell a brick here or a brick there. Exactly. You can't Mm. sell off the kitchen and then buy back the land room. You've got to sell the whole home. So you'll have a a lumpy, concentrated portfolio in property. Nothing the matter with property, just in the right balance. And diversification is not just buying 
particular companies. You know, you don't just sort of buy particular companies and say, well, I'm diversified. You've got to have diversification across different industries as well, which is something that uh, people should consider. Yeah, well, just back to those indices we are talking about earlier on, the Australian index is awfully concentrated, and I don't say awful in a bad way, but Mm. very concentrated on mining stocks as well as financials, a Telstra, a Woolworths, a CSL and those sorts of things make up the top 10 or 12 stocks and they account for over half the value of the 200. Mm. So you've got to be very careful about having that, what's referred to as concentration risk and then getting further down that 200, maybe buying some specialist funds that specialise in small caps, small companies, that, that type of thing. Yep, and BHP is going to take a, a huge chunk of the ASX 200 shortly. Yeah, we're talking in January, so at yep. the end of this month, um, BHP will repatriate itself, for want of a better description, mm-hmm. from the dual listing in London to be solely listed on the ASX in Australia and take its share of that index from around about 6 to estimated 10% of the mm. entire 200. So the big Australian is back in a big way and providing Australian investors who track an index or, or invest through a fund that tracks an index with very concentrated exposure to mining stocks. Add the other couple in there, Rio and Fortescue, four or five banks, you're really concentrated in those sectors. How much is the index comprised of, um, say, those stocks that you just talked about? Well, as I mentioned, they count for about half of it. Wow. So... <laughs> You could race out and buy those 10 stocks mm-hmm. or buy the whole index. And a lot of the wisdom in the past was, well, the, the other 190 yep. are going to give you the diversification. But if BHP has a bad day, it's the old story. If BHP sneezes, the index catches a cold. Yep. Wow. Okay. So risk and reward. Yeah, that's the trade-off. So let's start with the, the, the really obvious one. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And particularly in a low interest rate environment, very, very high returns. I'd be very sceptical, but do your research and educate yourself about what you may be investing in. You're talking about particular companies that might um, be flavour of the month or hot new things to invest in? It could well be. It could well be. And that could be word of mouth. And someone could have made that investment already, wants you to follow them. (laughs) Who would have thought? (laughs) But to some sense, that's um, self-gratification from their perspective and that I've done the right thing, others are following me. But yeah, across that spectrum, cash, as I mentioned, can be considered low risk whereas um, there's some other alternative asset classes, cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. could also be viewed as very high risk. It's looking very high risk at the moment, it's crypto. Very volatile. <laughs> Volatility as the price moves around yep. almost on a daily, daily basis and quite yep. considerable movements. So when you say risk-reward, what do new investors need to be considering in this equation? Is it this like risk-reward as well with different kinds of companies that they might be buying, for example? Yes, um, we're all aware of the recent developments with technology stocks. Mm-hmm. There's some great tech stocks, some great startups, and Australia has got a lot of uh, world-leading technology companies listed in our market. And I know the ASX is doing a lot more to encourage tech stocks to come here. Some of us can recall back to the beginning of the century, 2000, mm. the so-called tech wreck. didn't affect the Australian market as much as it did overseas markets because that's where the, the focus was for those companies to list. Yep. So there can be higher risk sectors or companies within those sectors. I come back to it, you start with cash and you sort of move up through term deposits, property, then possibly shares and equities can be among the higher risk. I didn't say risky, but higher risk types of asset classes in which to invest. And liquidity. Are we talking about the liquidity of a company, the amount of funds are available to the company or Um, your own personal liquidity? (laughs) Yeah, again, once again, it's all of those things. When I'm referring to how diversification helps with liquidity, it's how you choose to invest. 
So as I, as I mentioned, if you use the ASX, there's an on-market liquidity. Now, the prices on the ASX are set by real investors dealing with one another in most cases, certainly with shares. So it's an investor talking with another investor, I want to sell to you or I want to buy from you at, and they agree a price and they exchange on the market. That's the underlying liquidity of your share or your investment available through the ASX. So it just means that you've got access to that money any time that you want? You have access, you have the potential to buy and sell on the market mm-hmm. at a price that the market will determine. You'll have your money in two days after, mm-hmm. after settlement. T plus two is the expression. So the ASX manages that for you. So you'll have a broker on either side. They'll pass the money through the ASX. It'll hold it for two days to organise settlement and then money passes from the buyer to the seller. And hopefully soon it'll be electronic and we won't have to get those paper statements anymore. Well, indeed, it could be real time. Who knows? (laughs) So investment styles, active and passive. I mean, this is something that I made mistakes with for many years, thinking that you had to be active to make money in the share market. So what's the difference between an active and a passive, the driver or the passenger approach? Well, that's a good analogy. You can be a passenger and uh, be passive passenger for passive. So that means you just you invest in a fund such as an exchange-traded fund or an index fund that religiously tracks an index. So it follows the ups and downs. So effectively that price index we spoke of earlier, mm. when you see that on the TV at night or you hear reference made to it in a, in a news report, that's what you're getting. But the bus that you're a passenger on always goes the same route. Whether there's an obstacle there, it'll weather the obstacle, it'll wait if there's a traffic jam and those sorts of things. The alternative is active management where you have an active manager and the active investment manager's role is to look for those traffic jams and they may not be tracking an index as such but they'll say we'll be actively involved in the market and the management of your investment portfolio that you've given to us and we'll seek to exceed this benchmark. Depending on the nature of the underlying investment it could be starting with we want to do better than the RBA reserve bank rate by this much x percent. And that's our benchmark by which we should be measured. Or we wish to do better than the ASX 200 accumulation index, so the growth plus the income being reinvested. And if they see those roadblocks coming up, they may say, well, we're still going to stick to that index, but this is how we're going to do it. We're going to not hold that stock, and we're going to buy a little bit more of that. Whereas on the bus, the passive manager or the system that they use to actually track that index says that share has appreciated in value, we must buy more. The active manager might be saying, oof, that's running hot, we'll step back from that. The passive manager is buying that stock. On the other side of the mountain, as stocks come down, and yes, that's the unfortunate truth they do, the passive manager is selling into a falling market, whereas the active manager might be saying, we'll wait, we'll wait, we'll wait. Ah, there's real value there now, we'll buy into that market and we may pick up on the next increase. There's a number of actively managed products and these can be ETFs, they can be LICs or LITs or they can be managed funds. Is that correct? Is that the way usually that active management takes place? Just to put a finer point on it, ETFs, the the nomenclature ETF, exchange traded fund, they tend to be the passive index tracking funds that we Mm. spoke of. They are by value and by number the vast majority listed on the ASX. And around about a quarter from memory actually track an ASX Australian index, such as the 200 or the 300 or the 20 or the 50. Mm. So they are heavily focused on the Australian market, passively tracking those indices. 
And over the years, there has been an evolution to more active style exchange traded products or actively managed ETFs, if we can say that, where they may track bespoke index or they may be more sector oriented. So if, as we're talking about, they focus on some mining stocks or they focus on tech stocks or they focus on financial stocks. So you actually buy a concentration or in fact, some of them actually track prices such as the gold price or a currency like the US dollar. Mm. But they actively manage against some sort of benchmark. We're going to track that currency. We're going to track this bespoke index of tech products and funds. That's what's in there. That's what we're going to buy and sell. So they sort of, again, buy into those as demand for their idea increases. That's an open-ended structure. That means if I wanted to invest, and I can do this through the ASX, in one of those actively managed ETFs, I give my $5,000 to the manager and they go out and buy the underlying index and replicate that with my money against their active strategy. If I want my money back and there are more people like me wanting money back than wanting new units, they will actually sell the stocks that they hold to help me redeem and give me the cash back. They'll charge a fee for that as well. Mm. And they charge a fee along the way. The other style of active management is closed end. And that's why I'm particularly interested in the listed investment companies and the listed investment trust structures. They're actually closed end. And the really important thing there is that they manage their capital, their stock and trade, completely different from those open-ended, whether they're index tracking or actively managed ETFs. They actually have a closed pool of capital. The manager decides and talks with their investors about this is the strategy we're going to pursue, this is the benchmark we're going to follow, this is the outcome you should expect from us, but you've given us your capital to do that with. If you want to trade out of your investment with us, you do so on market with another investor. So another investor says, oh, I like that, I wish, wish to buy in, so I'll talk electronically a lot of the time on yep. through an online broker to another investor about I want to buy from you at this price, I want to sell to you at this price, and we sort of move around a bit through a broker. And that's the, the price at which we're exchanged on market. And so that's traded like a, a regular share? It is a share. So it a listed a share, investment yeah. company is mm. a share. As the name says everything, but it has all of those traits that we talked about earlier on, diversification, because it's not mm. just one share. It's quite often a range of shares within that company structure or other asset classes such as global shares. Mm. But the capital remains until the manager says, I need some more capital, I'll go to the market and say, who wants to participate through a rights or entitlement issue? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So am I correct in hearing you that um, with an LIC, if uh, you want to get out, you just sell it as a as you would any other exchange-traded product. An ETF feels the same way, but in fact, it's via another system. Like you put a dollar into an ETF and 10 cents of that dollar, if it's an ASX 200 ETF, is going to BHP and they're buying that amount of BHP on your behalf. Yes. And then the same as it goes out the other end. Yeah, you're right. And the very important thing is that the experience on the surface of it, it's the duck, right? The yes, duck yeah. on the surface looks very similar between a share, a listed investment company, an exchange-traded fund. Mm-hmm. 
the way you would access it through a broker on market. The differences are when you're dealing with a, an ETF or you can actually buy some managed funds on the ASX as well, you're actually talking through their system to the fund manager, not to another investor necessarily the vast majority of the time there can be some natural trades but the vast majority of time you're talking to the manager saying i want to buy ten thousand dollars worth of your investment idea but then works out exactly as you say the black box says bhp will probably be 10 percent of that index that you want to invest in so your dollar 10 cents there next one commonwealth bank probably csl and so on down through yeah uh, the others wow so let's talk about lic's lic's have been around for a long time Next year, in 23, we'll celebrate 100 years. Uh, and which one is that? That's, that's Whitefield. That's right, Whitefield, uh, yeah. It was formed in 1923. Mm-hmm. Yet 100 years, and this reflects not just their tenure and their stability and their ability to weather the course of events. Uh, they were the first fund managers, if you like, who saw the real benefits that an exchange product could bring, an exchange traded or an exchange available product. So they chose to list they are companies that are listed under the same listing rules as the BHPs, the Commonwealth mm-hmm. Banks and the West Packs we've been speaking about. They're admitted to the official list of the ASX. So they, they've been around for that 100 years. They've weathered the storms, I've said, and they, they hold a basket. So they deliver the diversification outlet. They hold a basket of assets within that company structure. They get all the benefits of patient, uh, effective, active capital management, They decide when to invest, how to invest, why to invest, and when to retreat Mm -hmm. over time. And uh, they pay dividends. So as a company generates profits, they're taken to its balance sheet. They pay tax. After they pay tax, they're entitled to pay fully frank dividends in many cases, if not most cases. And a lot of these original LICs are set up as vehicles for providing income, aren't they? Yeah, that's a pretty standard definition for a listed investment company and trust. Mm-hmm. is that they're income-producing vehicles. Some will appreciate in value in terms of the share price over time, and that reflects their growing portfolios more than BHP's found a new copper strike or found mm-hmm. a new iron ore strike or, or those sorts of things. Oh, wow, great news for BHP. Or China's really buying more iron ore from BHP. Whereas these guys are sort of saying, okay, well, we'll take a piece of BHP, put it into our portfolio, get the benefit of that, run that through our company structure, at the end of the year, we'll pay, or throughout the year, we'll pay a couple of dividends, if not more. And because we've made a profit, pay tax in Australia, they can be franked. Mm. Quickly explain the difference between LICs and LITs. I believe it's only just a tax setup, isn't it? They're both closed end, but the listed trust structure, the listed investment trust structure, or LIT, has a lot of the characteristics of the exchange traded funds we talked about. But the big differences are, as you point out, tax. Mm. A trust, as an ETF or a managed fund, doesn't pay tax itself. It passes all of the income, be it capital gain or income derived from other distributions or investments that it holds or rent, through to the end investor. Mm. If you're getting excited, sorry, I have to inform you, you do have to pay tax, but you do that at tax time. The company structure, which is pretty much the same for the 2,200 companies listed on the ASX, is that company structure pays tax on their income on an annual basis. And they pay that to the Australian government. And in fact, they'll pay it at the company rate, which is generally 30%. That's paid on behalf of the investors holding that listed investment company or listed company. Come tax time, around about the time you'd be paying the tax through the trust structure, you work out, hang on, I've paid too much tax. My tax rate is less than the company tax rate. I get a refund. And in some cases, many years down the track for some of our listeners today, if you're investing in your retirement fund, 
you pay zero tax, so you get a fully refunded tax check from the um, from the government. And, and these are franking credits. It's frank. So the franking yeah. credit refers to the credit you have as an investor for the tax mm-hmm. already paid by the company. Yeah, but it's paid it on your behalf. Some people have trouble getting their head around and think, oh, why is the government just giving people money back? It's not. It's similar to you as a PAYG taxpayer. Your employer pays tax. At tax time, you work out, is that too much or too little? And you make an adjustment. Mm. It's very similar in that regard. The company's paid tax from its profits that I'm an owner in that company. Have I paid too much or too little as an owner? So LICs aren't just about Australian shares. There's other assets that these companies will invest in, aren't there? Yeah, Phil, they're, they're well known for holding a, a basket of Australian shares. And when we talk about some of those traditional ones, that's what they've been doing for many, many years and doing it very well. But probably about 10, 15 years ago, there started to be a growing number that were actually holding global assets. So again, in the listed investment company space, you have an Australian listed company, an LIC, going overseas and investing in international stocks or global stocks, but as an Australian entity. I've just described how franking works because they are an Australian listed investment company. They pay tax here. They actually pay you a franking credit. Even though these things aren't available overseas. Typically, if you invested in a trust structure, in overseas shares, you just get all the flow through income and then Mm -hmm. you pay tax on it. But uh, there's no consideration for any income being received in Australia and, and tax paid on that. This active management that you, you mentioned, AFIC, which is another LIC which has been around for a very long time, I was reading this morning because today we're recording in late January and the markets are going up a little bit up and down. There's a yep. lot of volatility, you yep. know, things are going down. And the manager is saying that, well, we see some opportunities coming, but we're not ready to buy yet. So they have the ability to wait for markets to reach a point where they feel comfortable to buy in and hopefully generate some more returns for their investors. Exactly. Um, So they're looking at the market, they're seeing the volatility, they're saying, when will we see value in the stocks we wish to own? Yeah, value, that's the the word I was looking for. That's exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. And you might say, oh, well, they're just going to pedal along for a while. Why would I invest in in someone who's waiting and waiting and waiting? They're being Mm. patient. The other thing is, on their balance sheet, they've already had some many good years and they've actually stored up some profits which they can continue to pay out into the future. So they've got stored value in their own balance sheet. They've got a bit of cash in the bank, have they? they? Cash in the bank Mm -hmm. and the investment manager and their investment committees and the company structure that's around it, the board, directors, can make a call on, yes, we'll pay a dividend to our investors, even though it's been a difficult year. And we did see this through the pandemic. Many LICs that had stored value on their balance sheets were able to maintain, some actually increased their dividends. So is this sector, are they all still doing the same thing or they're looking at other investment opportunities around the world? Those larger, and I say with the greatest respect, traditional mm-hmm. listed investment companies that have been around for almost 100 years have continued to do what they do with their Australian share portfolios forever. However, of late, someone like an AFIC, which we we're just speaking about, uh, has been running a, a, a mirrored portfolio of global shares, thinking that they might expand into that space as well, whether it's a separate LIC or contained within the one of the AFIC stable. They have four already. Another interesting one is Argo, another well-known, long-term, long-running LIC. A number of years ago, it started an infrastructure fund, a global infrastructure fund. So here's a way you can use a well-known manager who's using other managers' expertise to invest globally in an asset class like infrastructure. Very difficult for direct investors to buy airports or toll roads or tunnels, 
but through those structures that they use, you can invest in small bite-sized chunks into the company structure, invest in an asset class such as global infrastructure, which helps your diversification and also gives you exposure to other income-producing asset classes that weren't normally easily available to Australian investors to invest in themselves. And this is something that I'm going to bore listeners with again, is that diversification also means asset classes. And this is something you can actually see when you look in your um, your superannuation statement. You can see all the asset classes where your money's being put in. Yep. And infrastructure is one of those asset classes. And this is where true diversification comes, is understanding that there's not just buying different companies in different industries, but there's also assets in sectors like infrastructure that are important for any kind of balanced portfolio. Absolutely. It would be very difficult for an investor to buy the airport. Mm. Some of those superannuation funds buy the airport or buy a 50% interest in an airport Mm. in Australia or overseas. So they use their, their grunt and their capacity to do that. They pass that through to their superannuation members. Well, here's an example for people willing to build a diversified portfolio to get a slice of infrastructure. Mm. or to even get a slice of real estate without actually having to buy a physical property through an ASX-listed A-REIT, which is a trust that invests in various types of property, such as offices or shopping centres, or, in a growing way these days, warehouses Mm. that are being used for logistics and distribution centres. So I don't want to wish to be unkind, but um, I was speaking with someone from an ETF provider, and I mentioned LICs to them, and um, they said that LICs are dead because actively managed ETFs can do exactly the same thing at a lower cost. Well, I don't think they can do the same thing. And I'm, I'm always very conscious of trying to extol the virtues of listed investment companies rather than talk about the negatives of mm. the alternative investment products. But actively managed ETFs do have that open structure. So they're subject to the ebb and flow of money coming in and money going out and cannot patiently manage their capital. Even in active manage. Active Even manage. in active manage. On any day, if they have more demand for redemption of units than they do for applications for new units, mm. they need to sell the underlying assets right. to realise okay. the value to pay you your cash. Mm-hmm. The closed-end structure of an LOC says you sell to another investor on market and he or she will pick up where you left off. So there's that consideration. So that's the forced buying and selling on demand, forced into a market they might be tracking or a benchmark they may have created to track if that's rising. So on the other side, on the way down, if it's falling. Given that sort of scenario, they don't have the opportunity for long-term investment thinking. Mm. So investment, as we started out, is a long-term process. Get the basics right and plan for a longer, longer term. So we talked about infrastructure. If you're investing in real assets such as infrastructure or property, you need a closed-end structure to maintain the capital so you're not forced to sell a runway or an aircraft hangar, which you cannot do. (laughs) Now, I know there's ETFs that do track infrastructure. They track an infrastructure index. So here we go again, you're following an index that is tracking a range of infrastructure underlying assets, not the real assets themselves. Gee, I could go down so many rabbit holes there, but anyway, (laughs) we better keep on track. So wrap up LICs for us, Ian. What are some of the main features that uh, and benefits for investors to think about? Yeah, first of all, they've got that long-term track record, close to 100 years. They use that closed-end structure so they can actually be proactive with their capital. They make considered investment decisions, not ones that are forced upon them by buyer-seller demand. Buyer-sellers can actually use the liquidity of an ASX or another exchange to actually transact, move in and out of their investments. So they've been able to focus in on doing what they do well for the long term. They have very much 
a long-term focus on their investment principles. And they've also been diversifying beyond just Australian shares. So over recent years, we've seen expansion into global as well as to things such as infrastructure. Mm. We've also seen the growth of listed investment trusts, which have uh, a pass-through income profile. So all the income that they generate passes through to the end investor before the investor pays tax. Now, because they're closed in, they're not subject to buying and selling to meet demand for new units or, or, or sell down existing units. They actually do that in the same as, as a share or an LOC on market. But what allows them to actually stream that income is the nature of their underlying. And what you're seeing now is a number of those listed investment trusts are investing in, not guarantee, but where there's a great deal of certainty about the underlying income profile, bonds. They could be government bonds, they could be investment bonds, they could be a range of sub-investment bonds, but across a diversified portfolio. They could also be investing in corporate loans to Australian businesses, where they'll lend to that business at a rate above the current RBA rate, and they'll take out their costs, and they'll distribute the balance above that RBA rate to their investors. In fact, some of them are actually doing it on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. For those income-needing investors, that's a way to do that. So I stress that the closed-end structure has a lot of those benefits, patient and persistent management of capital in a positive way. Was there any particular LIC that you wanted to talk about as a great example? It's an interesting one, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick it because, you know, it's like having kids. You don't, yeah, you no fear or favour. You can't have a favourite child. But yeah, that's right. It is the longest-running one, which is Whitefield, 1923. And we are recently doing a presentation where the, uh, the, the managing director created a, a chart and placed all these points. This is how we've performed in an accumulation way against our benchmark. But the benchmark actually used the ASX 200 accumulation index to a certain point in time and Mm. then had to go back to the All Ordinaries accumulation index before that because it's been running for so long. So ETF started around about the time the ASX 200 index was created, around about the turn of the century 2000. These guys have been going for many years before that. So it's sort of strange to look at. And that said, of course, the return was quite significantly (laughs) ahead of that index. So you just get to see the power of the compounding over that period of time, almost 100 years. And it's reflected by the change in the nature of the index. We had to use this one pre-2000, and this one has been the benchmark since. So that's an interesting insight to how these companies have operated. So we've got a couple more questions that we're going to cover, and that's uh, what's been your best investment decision? Yeah, everyone talks about their, their best investment decisions, hardly mentions their poor ones, but we all mm-hmm. have both. But my best one really was getting myself educated. You'd find this hard to believe, Phil, looking at me sitting here about 50-something years ago. <laughs> I went to what was the Sydney Stock Exchange at the time with my dad for a, a number of education sessions. And I sort of picked up on my parents' interest in investing, and that helped me understand a little bit more about the market. So shortly after that, I bought some BHP shares, which I still have. Uh, they sit in the self-managed super fund these days. But what I learned from that was the twists and turns of a company, the life of a company, even over the period which I've held it. So I've seen spin-offs and growths and I've got a whole lot of other stocks as a result of that. And some of us will be aware, not right now with the unification, but a few years ago, BHP created South 22, One Steel, Blue Scope. I think they even had an interest in Fosters at one stage. And then mm. I remember my first, here's some shares in a gold company because they sold BHP Gold. So I've learned a lot about how the whys and wherefores of shares and holding and investing over the time through that stock. I also have a whole bunch of other stuff, so I'm diversified. Don't look at me like that. So, but I've learned. I've learned from that experience. And I'm going to learn a little bit more at the end of this month and what turns out to be the, one of the biggest corporate actions in Australian corporate history. 
It's interesting that you say that. Another guest has said that the best way to learn is to find a particular company that you know and to buy a small holding in that and then learn as much as you can from that particular company. It's kind of like the education process you had with that, BHP. Pretty much what I did. And yeah. I, I got my dividends and what I was doing as a, as a young bloke, a lot younger, I was working at, okay, money received. I saw I invested X, mm-hmm. money received this time, this time, this time, how much? And I eventually got ahead. So over that period of time that I was actually recording it, the distributions and dividends actually paid for my investment. Mm. So, yeah, you learn a lot like that. And there's also another saying is that um, for many, this will be their first boom. We are in a boom. There's no question of that. And I wouldn't call any downturn at all, but we're, we're experiencing a, a purple patch. There's another saying is that you, you learn a lot from your first bull market. Mm. You make most of your money in your second bull market. Because unfortunately, <laughs> you learn on the wrong side of the bull market. Mm. So we won't say anything about worst investment decisions, but um, what's a decision that you wish you didn't make? Not to buy more BHP. (laughs) Ian Irvine, thank you very much. My pleasure. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.